Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 52. It's titled, Why Are Interest Rates So Low? And in some cases, even negative. The ideas for today's show came from two sources. One, Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke, former Federal Reserve Chairman, has started a blog. So after being the central banker for many, many years, I guess he spends his time giving speeches and writing on his blog. And it's pretty fascinating. And his first series of posts really were titled, Why Are Interest Rates So Low? And so I'll link to his blog in the show notes, but I'm going to cover some of the principles that he taught in that blog. Now, why the topic? Last week, I had laid down. It was about 11.30 at night. I was just drifting off to sleep, and my daughter came in and said my oldest son was on the phone, wanted to know if I was awake because he wanted to talk to me. Well, that got me awake. My son is in college, and it was pretty late for him to be calling, so I went into the other room, took the call, a little, little trepidatious, wasn't sure exactly what it could have been, and his question was, can interest rates be negative? Now, my son is not a finance major. He's, he's studying Asian. He's an Asian studies major. He's studying Japanese and Korean and history and such. So it was a really, really odd question, particularly that late at night. And it turned out his roommate is a, I believe his roommate's a finance major, and they were trying to understand this concept of negative interest rates. So we'll cover negative rates here, but we'll also cover what, what really determines the level of interest rates. Because if you have bonds in your portfolio, if you have stocks in your portfolio, and I assume you have both, you need to understand what is it that determines interest rates because they will definitely impact the return of both bonds and stocks. So we're going to start, just like last week, in the very beginning, but without me singing. And I'm going to start by just letting you know that the world is comprised of both savers and borrowers. Savers want to earn a positive rate of return on their savings. And so they invested in in bonds, they put it in the bank, or they invest in all different types as part of their savings activities. Borrowers want access to that savings to invest in projects or to buy things. And another name for borrowers in, in terms of economic terms are investors. But to not get confusing, because we think of savers as investors because you're investing money, but when we talk about investors in terms of borrowers, we're talking about those, particularly institutional borrowers, who are seeking funds to invest in capital projects, such as to build a new factory, to buy a company. And when those institutional borrowers make capital investments, they're really trying to earn a rate of return on those on those projects that exceed the borrowing cost. Now, in earlier episodes, we talked about how retail borrowers want to accelerate their future spending in the, into the present to buy a, a house or a car. We talked about that last week. And, and you can get to the point where these borrowers have taken on, particularly retail borrowers, have taken on so much debt that they want to pay it down. And so you get a period of deleveraging like we're seeing in the U.S. and some other countries. So you have savers and you have borrowers. And, and the theory is there's a rate of interest where the amount of funds that the savers want to save and the amount of funds that the borrowers want to borrow equal. 
And so, so you have supply and demand, and there is this equilibrium rate of interest. But they actually use what's known as the equilibrium real rate of interest. What a real rate of interest is, it's the market or nominal interest rate minus the expected rate of inflation. And so there's this clearing rate, says the economic theory, where the savers and borrowers meet. And not only is, is it a, a special rate in the sense that it's a clearing rate, but it also happens to be that real equilibrium rate that achieves what is known as full employment. In other words, there's enough capital projects going on that any worker that wants a job can get a job. Now, by full employment, we're not saying 0% unemployment. Full employment is that rate of employment. Again, if you want a job, you can get a job. But there's always churn in the job market. There are people leaving jobs. There's people taking a break. There's people find, trying to, to just left a job and, and working to get a new job and might take a couple of weeks. I mean, that, that's full employment. It's not 0% unemployment, but it's at a level and it could be 4 to 5%. That's considered full employment because if you, if you get unemployment lower to zero, zero, let's say 0 to 2%, that starts to put some pressures on on wages. And so central bankers, when they think of full employment, they're really looking at 5 to 6%, where there isn't these huge wage pressures that potentially can spark inflation. But if you want a job, you can get a job. So that's the theory. There's this, this equilibrium real rate of interest that you have the borrowers, you have the savers, but the challenge with that is it's an unobservable. We don't know what that real rate is. Ideally, economies are always at the real rate of interest so that unemployment is, is low. And if you want to do a capital project, they can be financed at a reasonable return that will be below the expected rate of return on the project. Now, what central bankers do, so Ben Bernanke used to do this. Now in the U.S. at the Federal Reserve, it's, it's Chair Janet Yellen. European Central Bank has Mario Draghi. What they try to do is they can't control, we're talking about what determines interest rates. Central bankers can't control all along the yield curve from short-term rates to long-term rates. They can't control what those rates are. There are other forces, and that's what we're going to talk about. The one thing they can control is the short-term rate of interest, which is sometimes called the policy rate. In the U.S., it's the Fed funds rate. But they try to to set a short-term interest rate that is effectively the short-term equilibrium real rate of interest. In other words, they try to say, all right, the short-term interest rate should be at this level because this is the level that we can achieve full employment and the amount of borrowers equals the savers. But they only control the very, very short end of the curve. But what they also can control is their message, their communication, because one of the drivers of interest rates along the yield curve, both short-term and long-term, is what is the current short-term interest rates but what is the expectation 
for future short-term interest rates. And so the Federal Reserve has a certain short-term interest rate, but they also are communicating the path that they think when they might raise interest rates and what they think short-term rates are going to be in a year from now or two from now, two years from now. So, so how can a short-term rate influence a long-term rate? Let's think again of that company that wants to build a factory. They need to access the credit markets to borrow money. This is their capital project. So they are, they are a borrower. They are an investor in that they're going to invest in a capital project. They have a choice. So they could borrow for 10 years to take out a 10-year loan, or they could take out a two-year loan, and then after two years, they could roll it over into another two-year loan. So the supply and demand for loans should ensure that that 10-year borrowing rate is at a level consistent with current two-year borrowing rates and expectations for future two-year borrowing rates. Because a 10-year note can be thought of as five two-year notes. That means the rate for that 10-year note embedded in it is not only the current two-year note rate, but also expectations for future short-term or two-year note rates. And that can seem confusing, but it, it's just, and again, it's, it's the theory. And when we're talking about what is it that determines the level of interest rates, one is the current short-term rate set by central bankers. So that's the anchor rate. And again, they try to set it very, very close to what in theory is the real equilibrium rate of interest. That clearing rate, which will ensure borrowers and savers meet at a certain, at that rate, and that's the rate that ensures full employment. But that's just a short-term rate. The second influence of interest rates then is expectations by the market for future short-term interest rates. What they think the short-term rate will be two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. And, and bond managers and those that spend a lot of time looking at interest rates, you can actually look at, let's say, expectations based in the future markets and based, in, based on current interest rates, what the expectations are for future short-term interest rates. Now, when it, let's go back to the question, how can you get negative interest rates? Well, there is this concept called the, the zero lower bound, which, which ec- economists and, and Fed watchers used to think, well, the central bank can only lower rates to zero. And the Federal Reserve has kept that short-term policy rate very much close to zero for six years now. And then, lo and behold, a number of central banks, particularly the European Central Bank, the Central Bank in Denmark, and the Central Bank in Sweden, set their short-term policy rate to negative. To negative? What does that mean? Well, that means that bank or, or banks, member banks for the European Central Bank, put money at the ECB. They can, they can save money there. Just like you save money at the bank, they put money with the central bank. Well, if you have a negative interest rate, that means that they're paying the central bank for the opportunity to hold their money there. Now, the ECB and these other central banks are trying to do that to encourage these banks 
to to lend the money, not to just keep it at the bank. So there's a cost to keep the bank to keep the money there. Central bank or the banks still keep it there anyway because they oftentimes you they'll, they're willing to pay that fee if they're getting some benefit. I mean, in some ways, you can think I I have a safe deposit box, which I have some valuables in. I mentioned. I bought some gold. I put some gold in the safe deposit box. I paid a fee to store those valuables there. I could put money in there also, but that is effectively a negative interest rate. I'm paying the bank a fee to store some valuables there. Central banks can do the same thing. They can pay, they can have their members' banks pay a negative interest rate, a fee to store money there. And just because it's central banks for convenience or the member banks still keep it there and they're willing to pay that fee. You can also have a negative interest rate within the the overall market as you go out longer term. And we talk about a negative interest rate, we're talking about you can have a negative real rate of interest. And again, a real rate of interest would be the market rate minus the inflation expectation. And right now in the U.S., interest rates in the shorter end of the curve, right? If, if rates, if nominal one-year rates are, I'm not sure what they are. I think they're, about, let's say they're about a half a percent. And you back out inflation of 2%, then you're achieving, that's a negative real rate of interest. And so those can be quite common, particularly with rates so low. But in some countries, you've seen nominal or market rates go negative, and those tend to be the countries where the central bankers are keeping the rates either negative or very, very low. And, and how can that be? Well, in that case, as we've talked about in earlier shows, earlier episodes, bond prices fluctuate as interest rates go up and down. So as interest rates go, go down, the value of bonds goes up. And as interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. Well, what really drives it is the price of the bond. So bonds do re- prices do react to interest rates, but interest rates are reflected in what the price of the bonds are. So if there's a huge demand for a particular bond, that price can be bid up to such a level that you're paying more for the bond than you will get back in terms of the interest and the principal. So let's say total interest payments over time, in, including the principal, is $150. And if the price of the bond gets bid up to $200, then that effectively is a negative interest rate because you're not going to get back that interest in principle. You're just not going to recover it. Why in the world would investors do that? Well, again, there's some benefit that they're getting that they might, that they're willing to pay, to pay. They're willing to pay for the benefit. And that benefit might be just they just it's inconvenient to hold cash so they want to hold a bond for whatever reason sometimes there are certain borrowings that are done or part of swap agreements which i've talked about in in earlier episodes i think it was episode 13 and these these swap agreements require holding some collateral and so there are some investors out there that want to hold collateral in, in order to back a loan and they don't care what the yield is on that collateral, on those safe assets, they'll, they'll pay any rate because they need it for some other reason. And so if there's enough of demand for 
these safe assets, they can be pushed up to such a price that the yield goes negative, that it's a negative interest rate. And it's particularly relevant today because the supply of safe assets used for these swap agreements, for these collateral, or for other reason, has been greatly diminished for two reasons. One, a number of investment-grade credits, such as in Italy, they've been downgraded, so they're not considered investment-grade anymore. So you have less of sovereign debt that is that is sort of the highest rating. You also have the central banks practicing quantitative easing. And in, in when we've talked about what quantitative easing is, that is when central banks go out into either the member banks or into the market and they buy treasuries. So they buy U.S. government debt, they can buy European debt, but the supply of these safe assets is being diminished. And so those combinations, less safe assets, demand staying the same or increasing, that can push interest rates to be negative. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. Now, what I just described, this demand for safe assets, is really the third reason why interest rates are so low or what drives interest rates. Again, the first reason was central banks setting short-term interest rates at what they believe is the equilibrium real rate of interest. The second then is so they set short-term interest rates. The second is expectations by the market for what future short-term interest rates are going to be that pathway. The third then is what is known as term premium, which is what I described in terms of the supply and demand. All things being equal, longer term debt, debt with a longer maturity should have a higher interest rate than short term debt. And why is that? Well, because longer term debt's more risky. The longer you hold, you lend money to someone, the longer the period, the more likely the greater the risk they're not going to pay. The same with bonds. The longer-term bonds, higher risk that they won't pay. Also, longer-term bonds are more sensitive to changes of interest rates because they have a longer maturity, a longer duration. Just the math of bonds affects that. And we, we just covered that on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. We're doing video lessons on how to invest in bonds, and we just went over a lesson on duration and how 
bonds will fluctuate because and, and what is duration and how they fluctuate relative to interest rates. And you can get more information on that at the money for the rest of us hub.com. But the longer term bond should have a higher interest rate. And because longer term bonds have a higher interest rate than short ter- shorter term bonds, that's known as term premium. But that is heavily influenced by this demand for safe assets and other bonds and supply. So right now that term premium the extra yield you get by owning a longer-term bond is not very great because there's a very, very high demand, and there's been less a supply of some of these safer bonds, as I just described. So that's the third thing that influences interest rates. Real rates, the short-term real rate, expectations for future short-term rates, the term premium, the supply and demand, and then the fourth is really inflation expectations. What does the market believe inflation is going to be in the future? Because every bond embedded in it, so you have the market or nominal rate, and then you have the inflation expectation, and and you back that out, and you get the real rate of interest. And again, there's this theoretical real rate of interest across a yield curve. That rate of interest that's completely unobservable that ensures full employment And there's a clearing between the borrowers and the savers. Now, there's a concept called that Janet Yellen mentioned in a talk that is sort of on the fringes a little bit of economics. And it's this concept of secular stagnation. Here's a quote from the talk, and I'll link to it. The talk was called Normalizing Monetary Policy. Pretty interesting because she describes what the Federal Reserve is looking at to decide when they will increase interest rates. But here's a quote. Moreover, some recent studies have raised the prospect that the economies of the United States and other countries will grow more slowly in the future as a result of both democratic demographic factors and a slower pace of productivity gains from technological advances. Now, we talked about that last week, the fact that GDP output growth is determined by demographics and the population in the world is getting older and the population is not growing as fast. So that has led to slower economic growth. The second driver is productivity gains, the ability to make more loaves of bread with the same amount of workers, as we talked about the baker example last week. So technological gains aren't coming as fast potentially, and that could lead to slower economic growth. And then she goes on to say, at an extreme, such developments could even amount to a type of secular stagnation in which monetary policy would need to keep real interest rates persistently quite low relative to historic norms to promote full employment and price stability, absent a highly expansive fiscal policy. What is she describing? She's describing exactly what we talked about in this episode. The need to keep real interest rates low in order to achieve full employment, to keep the real rates low so that because that's the equilibrium real rate of interest that ensures full employment and also price stability so you don't have too high of inflation. And that's, that's the idea of secular st- stagnation, that there's just the, – the animal spirits are so low, the, the desire – to go invest in capital projects by businesses, that there's such a level of uncertainty that they're unwilling to do it 
unless rates are really, really low. Some central bankers have said they need to be so low they need to be negative just to compel speculators, businesses to invest in capital projects and hire workers. That is secular stagnation. There's a, there was an ebook put out by the Center for Economic and Policy Research last year on this secular stagnation. It was called Secular Stagnation, Facts, Causes, and Cures. I'll link to it in the show notes. In there, there's a fascinating essay by Joel Moker, M-O-K-Y-R, of Northwestern University. And, and he was sort of taking the task, those that believe in secular stagnation, this idea that, yes, population is slowing, but the idea that technology, we've already had all the good technology, and so we're not going to get the productivity increases, the ability to make more output with less input or the advantage of technology to, to assist in increasing productivity. It's just not going to happen. And, and he points out two really, really interesting things. First, he lists all the really, really cool technology that's coming down the pike. There's robotics, there's quantum computers, there's advances in material sciences of the things that we make out of, things out of ceramics. There's genetic engineering, 3D printing, the Internet of Things. And he says, as science moves into new areas and solves issues that were not even imagined to be solvable, there are inventors, engineers, and entrepreneurs waiting in the wings to use the new knowledge and design new gizmos and processes based on it, that mostly will continue to improve our lives. So science is not stopping. We continue to get really, really fascinating things. He says the problem is what we're measuring. Last week, he talked about GDP. GDP is a measure of output. He says economists are trained to look at these aggregate statistics like GDP per capita and its derivatives such as factor productivity. So we talked about productivity last week. These measures were designed for a steel and wheat economy, not one in which information and data are the most dynamic sectors. What he's saying is we're measuring the wrong thing. What we should be measuring, we're measuring output. But so many of these inventions are are benefiting its welfare. It's making us happier. It's giving us experience, things that aren't captured in GDP. Now, he does point out a problem, which is the second thing. One, many of these goods and services can be made at very low or zero cost. Once you have, once you design the iPhone, which completely revolutionized at least how I use the phone and how we're interacting in terms of our mobile devices, once it's created, the, the additional impact on GDP of each device is very, very low. Yet it's benefiting benefiting us significantly. But that isn't being captured. And so this idea of secular stagnation, yeah, maybe output isn't growing as fast, but human welfare is just jumping dramatically. That's his point. The other thing, though, is more of a concern. And he calls it, it, again, it's this front-loading effect. He calls it dumbing down of the user. You have these very, very ingenious Inventors, engineers, software developers, they're creating these cool things that we benefit from, but it doesn't take, because the high-paying jobs are the ones designing it, once it's designed, much of the making, the output, is automated through robotics, and so you don't, you sort of get this hollowing out of 
workers because you don't need as many workers to produce these really, really cool gadgets. I talked about this back in episode eight. What if everyone works eight hours? No, what if everyone works four hours a day, half the time? What if we became so efficient at making things that we could satisfy, satisfy all our needs by only working four hours a day? That is contributing to some extent to this idea of secular stagnation. We don't need as many workers today as we did 50 years ago to produce the same amount of output. We're getting much more efficient. Many of these inventions really, really benefit us. We can experiment them, experience them, but one of the challenges, if there's only a select few that can afford them that, are, that have these high-paying jobs because the middle class, many of the jobs have been automated, that is definitely a challenge. And if you go back to episode eight, I talk about potential solutions to that, but it seems to be something that we're very much facing in the current environment. Could that be contributing to this potential secular stagnation, or at least the idea that interest rates are going to continue to be low for a long period of time? So what drives interest rates? We know it's the short-term rate set by the Federal Reserve and other central banks are trying to keep it at the real equilibrium rate of interest that ensures full employment. It's expectations by the market for the path of those short-term interest rates into the future, what they believe it's going to be. It's the inflation expectations by market participants. What is the inflation premium that they're pricing in to the interest rates? Get the market rate minus the inflation expected inflation equals the real rate of interest. And then you have the term premium, which is really a fancy name for the supply and demand for bonds along different areas of the yield curves. Interest rates will not increase until those drivers of interest rates, those things that determine it, change. That's what I certainly am monitoring. That's some of the things that we monitor on the Money for the Rest of Us hub. Now, it also very much influences stock prices because the lower the interest rates, the the higher the valuation you can justify for stock prices because all a stock is when you value a stock, it is a basically future income going way out into the future. And then that future income, those future dividends are discounted. In other words, the value of stock in theory is the present value in today's dollars of all those future earnings. And those earnings are discounted or valued based on prevailing interest rates. And so when interest rates are rock bottom low like they are today, that can justify a a higher valuation for stocks. If interest rates were twice as high today, then the valuations of stocks, you wouldn't see PEs of 20 or 25, you you would see them lower. And so that's why we have to monitor the drivers of interest rates. That's episode 52. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's where you can also sign up for my insider's guide and I'll email those show notes to you weekly. That's where I'm answering listener questions and providing other valuable content. If you'd like more information on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, this is a mobile-optimized platform. Most members like to get the content via audio and so they're listening to audio lessons or listening to video lessons on their mobile devices. They're even listening to the monthly investment conditions report that guides the decisions they make with their own portfolio. 
there's an audio version of that. And so that's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, in the economy. If you have any questions, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Have a great week.